Um, what we've been doing, we've been working through what we believe, just the doctrine. Um, that's very important because um, it's, it's fun as a church planter, as a baby church planter, I've never done this before, it's fun to jump ahead to like, what are we going to do? Like the planning stuff. All right, let's secure what we're going to, some money, and let's get a building, and let's get some people together, let's put a band together, and uh, I won't leave worship because that would be a pretty bad idea, and let's, let's, let's go and run with it. But the, the crucial thing for us to do is, as a church plant, to lay a really good foundation. And so we've been, we haven't spent a lot of time through the summer and through the fall talking about what are we going to do? I've been telling you guys the past few weeks, like, that's changed. That's going to change next week. We're going to be planning the next few months coming up. But we've been establishing who we are. These are our values. We're about Jesus. Like, he is the one who started this whole thing as in creation. He's the one that whenever we were separated from him, and I'm cheating to the other part of what we're going to be studying tonight, when we were separated from him, he made a way between us and God. He is the object of all our worship. He is the one for whom we're created. And until we are connected to him, until we find our meaning and identity and life from him, our life will be empty and meaningless. And so because of who Jesus is, all of life becomes worship. The way I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a worker, it's all worship. Paul said, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all for the glory of God. And so all of life is about worship. And so I understand that as a, as a believer, once I'm a Christian, the way I grow as a Christian isn't by like becoming a better person and checking things off a list every day. You know, I didn't talk bad to my wife today. I read a certain amount of scripture. I prayed X amount, but growing as a believer means growing in my worship and not finding my value and identity in something other than Jesus, but in finding it in him and, and recognizing parts of my life that I'm finding identity and value outside of him. And then that creates Christian community. And excuse me, Christian community is, can only result, be a result of the gospel. The only way that people can actually really know each other for real and for true and not put on a mask what I want you to think I'm like or what I think that you expect me to be like, but I can be real in all my mess and in all my junk is if my right standing with God and my right standing <laughs> with other believers isn't based upon what I do or have done, it's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And then together as a community, that's what we're praying that we as a church plant are becoming and that as we are, will be inviting more people in, that that's what they will be signing on board to, not coming to a service and then leaving, but being a part of a Christian community. And then a Christian community that doesn't just exist for ourselves, but exists on mission, understanding that Jesus, before he left, after he rose from the dead, that's cheating to two weeks from now, after he rose from the dead, I think you guys already know that, 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 that the last thing he said before he did that was, go and make disciples. That's our job. And so whatever Whatever stage of life we find ourselves in, if we're married, if we're father, mother, or single, or whatever stage of life we're in, whatever we do, maybe I stay at home with the kids, or I'm out, I have a career, whatever I'm doing, the apex of all of that, the, the channel that all of that is flowing into is the mission that God called us to, to make disciples in every nation. 
And that's why we're starting a church, not because we think other churches stink or because, like, I, I would like to put pastor on my business card, and I think that would be pretty impressive to people. The reason we're starting a church plant is because we, we know that there are many people on the Grand Strand who are not being reached, who do not yet know him. And so we want to be a part of a community of people on mission, reaching them. And so to that end, at the, crux, at the crux and the core of that is the gospel. And that's what we're talking about tonight, really, when we're talking about the crucifixion. We're talking about the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives us a summary of the gospel. And we're going to be doing a lot of... Um, flipping around tonight again, and I'm going to be um, looking for you guys to give me feedback in just a minute, so be ready for that, all right? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Stop there. So, Paul, <laughs> James is like, you got three words into it, you told us to stop. no. So Paul is telling us that as Christians, we need to be reminded of the gospel, that the gospel isn't something you hear one time at a church or somebody shares with you across from a, a cup of coffee and you become a believer, but constantly we need to be re-reminded of the gospel, that every day, every moment, I need to re-remember over and over again. You know why? Because we forget and we want to lean upon our own understanding, our own righteousness with God. Like, okay, I feel like I'm doing pretty well today because I'm nailing today. Like, you're, you're, it's like 1030 on Monday, and you're like, I've read all my scripture. I haven't talked with God about somebody. I prayed all the way over here. I was listening to worship. I am nailing this day. But already, you, by, even by doing that, you're going off on the side of pride. Right, So you need to be re-reminded that your standing with God doesn't depend upon how well you're doing or how poorly you're doing today, but it's the gospel. And let's see what that is. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. See, James, there's a lot of stuff I, can, I could have stopped just there, but I'm, I'm rolling this. Okay. Uh, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's saying there's a possibility that we could have believed in vain if we don't hold fast to that. For I deliver to you as of first importance. So this is, this is the most important thing that Paul preached to them. That what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, that's the other apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So this would be a great passage of scripture. If you're like, 
man, when people ask me, what is Christianity? Like, what is this deal? This would be a great passage of scripture to memorize, particularly verse 3 now, we're going to read it again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So that's, first, that's the first thing. Christ died. So, so let's stop there. The crucifixion is the, is the truth that Christ died, that Jesus came. We talked last week about the incarnation, 100% God, 100% man. Nobody understands it, but we believe it. I can't explain it, but it's true. 100% God, 100% man. He, scripture tells us that he added to his divinity humanity. It's a mystery. I don't know how it worked. He was born. He grew just like a human. He was a human. He ate. He drank. Guys, he pooped. He peed. He probably stubbed his toe. He probably had... Bad. In fact, Scripture tells us that he had days that he was sad. He had days that he was depressed. He had days that he was stressed. He had days that were happy. He laughed. He ate. He, he went to parties. He was, he was a human being. He grew. He was a carpenter at age 30. He enters into a, a stage of ministry. He goes about preaching the truth that the kingdom of God has come. He's healing the sick. And then, though he lived a perfect life, he was betrayed on the, on the night of Passover by one of his own students. And he went through a sham of a trial where he was accused of things that he had not actually done. And then he was delivered over to be scourged, to be beaten. I was listening today to a guy describe um, what, once again, what a scourging is like. And I'm not going to go into it tonight. It is horrendous. It is, this, many people on their way to crucifixion would actually die in the middle of the scourging because it was so incredibly painful. It, it, there were times when the cat of nine tails would so dig into the body that a rib <coughs> would actually be ripped out of the living man while he was being beaten. Can you imagine? And then Jesus, in that weakened state, Isaiah had prophesied towards that crucifixion, this moment past the scourging, that, that people who knew him wouldn't even recognize him because he was so disfigured and dismembered. Tries to carry his own cross. He can't make it because he's so weakened. His cross is carried for him to the place of crucifixion where he was nailed to the cross through the most painful, the, the, you have the most nerve endings in the part of your, of your hand that they would have nailed him in and in his feet. And the crucifixion was the most painful death of the Romans who knew about pain and knew about suffering that they could inflict on people. It was reserved for the most heinous offenders. Uh, in fact, uh, I think if, if I have this correct, Roman citizens weren't even ever crucified. It was so painful and so horrendous. They were beheaded because it was less painful than a crucifixion. Uh, it, it's, it, it's staggering when you think about, uh, I don't want to even go to all of it, but it was designed to be the most painful form of death and to be an example, a public example for, for people around them to see 
what happens when you cross the government, when you, when you do something wrong. And Jesus was nailed to the cross, raised up. He died on the cross, a physical death. And then to make sure, they pierced his side with a spear and blood and water came out. Then they pulled him down off the cross and put him in a tomb. Everybody signed off on the fact that he had been, that he had died. And if he hadn't been, piercing itself would have killed him. But the fact that you, that scripture tells us that blood and water flowed showed that the blood had already coag- started to coagulate and so that he had already been dead whenever it flowed out of his side. So first of all, of first importance that Jesus, that Christ died. He died a physical death. And then look, he was buried that he was raised on the third day, Paul's cheating ahead to two weeks from now, in accordance with the scriptures. So that's important, that, that all, dozens of prophecies had happened hundreds of years before, some thousands of years before the, the scourging and the crucifixion takes place in Jerusalem that, de- that described in different ways minute details about who would be killed and how it would happen. And it all in accordance with those scriptures, it all happens. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12 after he rose again. Um, like a, he died. Yeah, but, but the other part I wanted to talk about was that he died for our sins. So, this is the first term. We got a few terms for you guys tonight. Um, you, you might be super comfortable with them, super aware of them. You might feel like they're really big words, uh, but I'm going to give them to you because they are important in what they communicate, okay? It's not just because we want to like, be super impressive in the words that we're talking about, but it's important because of the truth that it's communicated. So first of all, we're going to talk about what did the crucifixion accomplish. First, the first thing accomplished is called penal substitution, substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. You guys know what that means? Well, penal is the, is that like the Greek or the Latin penalty? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so Absolutely. So we're talking about the gospel now. Penal, that means that there was a penalty for our sin. Scripture is very clear all the way through that we, us being not only, not only the sins that we have accomplished, but just actually being born into a family of sin, that, we, that there is a penalty that comes with that. And the penalty is not just separation from God, but the penalty is being under the wrath of God himself. That God is so holy, he's also loving, but he is so holy and so just that being a traitor against him cannot go unpunished. And so the wrath of God hangs over all of us as a penalty for our sin. There's a, there is a literal, physical penalty that occurs after death, and that is called hell. It's not a comfortable thing to talk about. It is certainly not in vogue to talk about very often today. And for obvious reasons, at times it's been abused. To talk about hell has been like you throw guilt and fear on people to try to scare them into the kingdom. That actually doesn't work. But, um, but the truth is that there is a punishment. There is a penalty for being 
sinner. All right? So that's the, the fact that there's a penal, there's a penalty. And then substitutionary. That seems pretty straightforward, right? So that we, the penalty of sin is death. And, and separation from God, the wrath of God in hell. And we have this picture of Jesus being our substitute. That he took the penalty that was due to us, and we get something in exchange. We'll be talking about that in just a minute. We get something in exchange. We exchange places. He gives us uh, his standing, and he takes our standing. And the reason he could do so is because he, had, he was 100% God, 100%, 100% man, lived a perfect life. And so that way, he, he didn't have death coming to him, so he could take the penalty and be a substitution. And then atonement. Do you guys know what atonement means? Anybody? Yes, absolutely. The idea of atonement is that that penalty that we have, that he it is, has to be paid for. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 6. We're going to look at a few verses where it's talking about um, penal substitutionary atonement. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So he's talking about sin, right? And the Lord has laid on him, who's that him? Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then we'll just read the next few verses um, on our way to verse 12. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and then made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Look, he's prophesying hundreds and hundreds of years before this would happen. Although he had done no violence and yet there was no and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offering he shall prolong his days the will of the lord shall prosper in his hand let's jump down to verse 12 therefore i will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgress with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So that's, that's transgressor. So that's an idea that he has um, atoned for our sin. Look at Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in this section several, several times tonight because Romans is just all about the gospel. Um, Starting in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, what does your verse, what does your version say? Propitiation. Propitiation. Sacrifice of atonement. Sacrifice of atonement. Anybody have something different? Propitiation. Uh, we're going to come back to that word propitiation. Um, 
by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. I have lots of verses trying to figure out how not to take you all to these because they're so awesome. Um, Second Corinthians chapter 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that awesome? And then we'll look at just one more, Galatians 3. Verse 13, I believe. Uh, three. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curses everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit. Through faith, So the curse of the law is that the, the fact that we break the law of God means that we are under his wrath and that he has redeemed us from that. He has ransomed us or, or bought us back. He gave his life as a ransom for us in return. So penal substitutionary atonement. That's an important term to understand because people have different views about what Christ's death did. Some people say, well, it was a... He's a good example for us to how to, to endure suffering, so we should follow him in that example. Or he showed us how much he loved us by his death on the cross. And both of those things are true, but it's not the whole story. Those are branches from the fact that he was making substitutionary atonement for our sins. He wasn't just an example though he is. He wasn't just showing us his love for us, though he was. He was doing something for us that had to be done that only he could do. The second term is justification. Justification. Look at Romans chapter 4. In verse, I think verse 25... We'll start with verse 24. But for ours also, it will be counted us who believe in him, that's Jesus, that's that's God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Look at the chapter before, Romans 3, back in the same section of scripture that we just looked at before Atonement for all have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What is justification? Legal term. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically saying that you're in right standing. Yes. Absolutely. It, it's a, it, and that's important. It's a legal term. So whenever 
whenever you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, something happened. You are justified before God. And what does that, what does that mean that instantly you're a better person? No? You, you, I, there are stories of people who, like, you know, I was a smoker, I was big into drugs or alcohol, or I had a mouth like a sailor, and, you know, instantly after I was saved, that, like, that changed. Like, and that's awesome. But it's very possible that five minutes before you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and five minutes after, that you're the exact same person with all the mess and everything, but something has changed. And it's that legally... God has applied that atoning work of Jesus that we were talking about. He has applied that on your account. And so you're the same person, same problems, same sins, same hang-ups, same Dale as before and after, but he's justified before God. He's made right before God, made a right standing before God because he is, God has declared him not guilty, not because of any work he's done, but based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. Does that make sense? Yeah? So that's, that's very important to understand that we, we often want to switch things up and we want to base our justification on our sanctification. You guys know what sanctification is? So if, when I'm, I'm justified the moment I believe in Jesus Christ and put my trust in him and I'm born again, I'm justified. Sanctification is a lifelong process that I enter where I'm becoming more and more like Jesus in the way that I think, in the way I speak, in the way that I act, all those things as I grow as a believer. But what we want to do is I feel like I am in better standing with God today because I'm really nailing it today. Or I really messed up last night. I have to kind of work my way out of this pit that I'm in. I have to pray X amount, read X amount of scripture, talk to so and so many people about Jesus, go to church X amount of times, you know, whatever the case may be, do a certain number of rosary prayer, whatever the, the deal may be that gets you back in right standing before God. But the doctrine or the truth of justification says you are justified not based upon your work but based upon Christ's work for you. It's the legal standing that you have. So don't make that mistake. That's why we have to constantly re-remind ourselves of the gospel. When we start to gather as a public group on Sunday mornings, we're going to partake of communion every week. And part of that is to remind myself of the gospel, that my standing before God is not based upon what I am doing or how well I have done, but it's based upon how, what God did on my behalf in Christ. And how well he accomplished that. That's my standing. All right? So that's term number two. Term number three, propitiation. You guys like that one? That's a cool word, right? Propitiation. Anybody know what that means? No? Anybody? Give me a... You, you want to give a shot? Mm-hmm. Payment. Yeah, propitiation is exactly both of those. It has to do with that sacrifice. It has to do with payment. 
And it's connected to the idea of the wrath of God. So, as a sinner who has been a traitor to the throne of God. It, see, we modern Americans want to think of people either as essentially good or we want to think of people as neutral. Like you start off life neutral and you get to this and you're going to decide whether you're going to go this way or you go this way. And so, you know, we look down on people who go the wrong way more often or, you know, whatever the case would be. But the truth is, scripture tells us that you are born a sinner and because you are a sinner, you sin. And that the more you sin, you are piling up for yourself the wrath of God. That the wrath of God is set against sin. And not just sin, because we want to say God, just bear with me just a second. We want to say that God hates to sin, but loves the sinner. But scripture tells us that God hates sinners. And they are under his wrath. He's not just, his wrath isn't against, against sin in general. His wrath is against the traitors against his throne. Now, that's very uncomfortable. It's, it's actually uncomfortable to even say this in front of people I know who are probably all believers. But it's, it's very uncomfortable in America to proclaim that. But that's the truth. And the idea of propitiation is great news that we get to share with people because it says that God has made a way to, think about it. We have wronged God, and God's wrath is against us, and God made a way to, to propitiate or to pay for, appease his wrath on our behalf. That's really good news. I mean, the gospel is great news, but good news is only good if you realize the bad. Like, if I tell you a firefighter's here, like, you're like, okay, cool. But if a firefighter's here and this building's on fire, then that becomes excellent news. If you're trapped on the third story and you say, hey, somebody just put a ladder on your window, you're like, some creeper is coming up to my, to my window. But if your house is on fire and a la- somebody tells you there's a ladder at the window, that is great news. And so one reason people don't respond to the good news of the gospel is they don't understand the bad part of it. And we don't do a very good job explaining that to them. So the gospel is a two-prong, uh, it's, it's two-pronged. It's saying, look, this is really, really bad news. You are born a sinner. There's no way out of it. And you have, ever since you could ever make a decision, you've been piling up sin upon sin upon sin. And what that has done is this piling up wrath upon wrath upon wrath of an eternal, holy just God who cannot let you go. There's a reason he can't just let you go because if a if a murderer, if a rapist appears before a judge and that judge has, he looks at him, he has pity upon him and he says, you can go. That's not good news, is it? Like we want that judge taken off the bench. He, he I mean, that is that's, hor- that's horrendous. That's not fair. That's not just. That's not loving to everybody else. He, he, he's having compassion upon this guy, but this guy's a murderer. He's a rapist. He, there, there, there is a consequence for following that course of action. And just, be, just like it would be unjust 
for that judge to declare him not guilty. It would be unjust for God to declare us unguilty, even with his compassion that he has for us, without appeasing that wrath, appeasing that penalty that was, that was hanging over our heads before we put our trust in him. And the good news is he has propitiated, he has paid for, he has appeased his wrath towards us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's great, great news. If you are a believer, you are not under the wrath of God. He has nothing but loving, compassionate thoughts and feelings towards you. Not based, again, upon how well you're doing with this thing, but based upon the finished work of our oldest brother, Jesus Christ. All right, so that's turn number four, uh, number three. Turn number four um, is called expiation, all right? Expiation, E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N, expiation. And that is, is, is a pretty simple term, Ex, to expiate something. You guys know what that means? Yep, to, to throw it out, to do away with. So the idea is that um, when Christ, based upon the atonement on our behalf, when we are justified, our sin is expiated. It is crossed out. It is taken away. It is thrown out. God said, I remove it as far as, far as from east to west, I have removed it. He doesn't even think about it. It is covered by the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, nullified. So, man, can you imagine being, like, really being guilty and coming up for trial? And you know you're guilty, and you're trying to get out. But you just know, like, it is stacked up against me. But somebody comes in and says, it has been totally done away with. All of, all of, the, all, all of the witnesses, all of the evidence that has been against you has been expiated. It is gone. It is no more. And that's great, great news. So what did Christ cross accomplish accomplish a lot of things but tonight we're just talking about four penal substitutionary atonement justification propitiation and expiation yeah all right all right cool now this is the part where i want you guys to jump in all right so i want you to put your thinking caps on and 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 share with me all right so if we think about the crucifixion what god did on the cross god died on the cross think about that I and mean, that's, I don't understand. It, I mean, a circuit just flipped in my head whenever I said that. Something's like, things are arcing, things are not making sense back here. But God died on the cross for you and for me. So what does that mean for non-believers? For people that you work around, neighbors, family members, people that you know who do not know Christ, do not love him, they've not placed their trust in him, they've not been born again, what, is, what does that mean? They're under his wrath. Absolutely. I mean, that's really bad news, isn't it? Well, that's, that's really bad news. I mean, it makes, it changes the game a little bit. If we believe people are essentially good or they're neutral, then, you know, they they may or may not need Jesus, really. 
They may or may not need a new church in this area. But if we believe that people, apart from hearing, understanding, and believing the gospel, are under the wrath of God, then it changes the stakes. I mean, what could be better than to be on a mission to help rescue people who are stuck under the wrath of God apart from hearing, understanding, and believing the gospel? What else does it mean for non-believers? And that's something that's changed. uh, America is is different. A lot of preachers haven't changed, and churches haven't changed the way they approach. Um, 50, 60, certainly 100 years ago, um, America was full of, it was a culturally Christian nation. I won't say it's a Christian nation, but it was a culturally Christian nation. It was pervasive, this idea of sin, this idea that we're sinners. And so people knew that. People had, they came into the game with this sort of understanding somehow, even if it was messed up, this understanding that uh, there is a God and there's something wrong between me and him. Like, like I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm not necessarily a good person, but that has changed where, like, it's really not hard for me to believe that God loves me as an American. Because, like, I'm lovable. I'm amazing. Like, why wouldn't he not love me, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what we think about ourselves. Everybody tells you, you're, you know, from the, it starts when you're a kid and all the way through school. You're special. You're unique. You're one of a kind. All that's true, but we're, but we're puffing each other up for this sort of concept of that. You know, God loves you. If there is a God, then, he, then he's a God who's loving and, you know, nice and he's, you know got a jolly belly and, you know, rosy cheeks. You know, that's, that's a kind of, you know, kind of a cool kind of guy like that. Um, anything else? Well, it makes me think about the verse talks about it, please God to crush him. It's like, mm. when, you make, when you're making the statement that you know, God died on the cross, well, if it pleased him to crush his son, what chance do you have? Mm. You know, it goes contrary to this whole belief that uh, you're, you're special or He's going to give you the pass. Uh, you know, come on in, you're a good guy. Yeah. Almost every other religion that I know of is based upon a tally, mm-hmm. one way or the other. That whether it's you stand before a God or you pass into the next life, but it's determined, your eternity is somehow determined by the fact that you have more good in your account than bad. Like you're piling up two sets of stone, like a giant scale. And you're putting something over here and something over here. And you do something little that's good, it's like a little pebble. You do something really big that's good, it's a big rock and vice versa on the other side. And that I'm hoping to get to the end and have this side be heavier than this side. But that's not what Christianity says. It says we're all in the same boat. It's really bad news. And, and that God did something on our behalf. That's very unique to Christianity, the fact that God would come, be a human, do something on our behalf that we couldn't do, absolutely unique. 
Anything else about somebody who's not a believer, not a Christian? I think, too, it's seeing, you know, talking about um, if you don't have Jesus and you're under, your, under his wrath, that it's, it's, sometimes as a Christian, it's really easy to look at other people who aren't Christians and be like, oh, I'm a really good person. You know, start stacking up those rocks again, <coughs> then just to realize that it was just a decision. You know, it's just grace, just a decision that I really could be a lot like that person, but just by the grace, I've already made the decision to follow after Christ, but there's really not that big of um, innately at the base of it, there's really not a big difference between you and me, you know? Yeah, it's all of grace. That's why when we read in Ephesians, Paul says that God, he, he, in so many words, he says, God designed salvation in such a way that no man would be able to boast. That, 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 so, so as Christians, um, some, some Christians say they're humble, but they're really cowards. Like, I don't really want to share the truth about, and I say I'm humble, and I'm trying to develop relationships with people, and I don't want to wait for the right moment. But really, and I'm saying this out of, like, personal experience. But really, I'm just being a coward. I don't want to talk about it. And then some Christians are like, you know, knocking people over the head, you know, they're not, you know, they're not humble. They're being bold, right? That's the word they're using. I'm bold for Christ, but really, like if you check behind them, it's just leave carnage all behind them. People who hate, you know, I hate Christians because of that guy. You know, he's such a jerk, you know, all the time. He's getting my business and all, you know, all this stuff. But Christians should be both humble and bold. And the boldness comes from the fact that, that, that Christ did it on my behalf, and also the humility comes that Christ did it on my behalf. That's not me. I can't boast. I'm not like, hey, you should really get your life together like mine because I'm a really smart guy. <coughs> you know? No. It's, it's, I'm saying, I'm coming to you as somebody who you're drowning, and I'm coming to the one as I was drowning too, and I was saved. And I'm still, I'm not even like a swimmer. I'm still like, I'm in the dinghy. I'm just like somebody else pulled me out of the water. Hmm? Yeah, exactly. I got my swimmies on, you know. I, somebody else blew this up and put them on my arms. I don't even know what happened. I, you know, it wasn't even like, I wasn't even like, hey, give me those swimmies. Like, so they're just, we're there. I don't know. It's, it's amazing. Anything else? Any other truth? It's okay if you Anything else? No, no. I, I think you guys have talked about it. It's just this is the truth that it's good news. That 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 if somebody can understand the gospel, that it's really good news to them. It's when 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 Jesus describes finding finding him, finding the gospel like finding a treasure that's hidden in the field. Like you're walking along and you're like, man, there's gold. I mean, there, there's, there's oil underneath here. And, and, and you go and you hurry up and you sell. Every, you can't afford the piece of land. And you go and you sell everything that you have. Everybody around you thinks you're crazy. Like what in the world is going on? You know, you're stupid. You buy that piece of land because you know it, it's, it's a no miss. There is oil underneath this land. And you buy the piece of land and there is oil there, and it's all worth it in the end. He says, that's what the gospel is like? Like, that's not only true for me, it's true for other people. I'm sharing a hidden treasure, but it is hidden. It's a hidden treasure. It's not apparent to everybody when you share it with them. It sounds 
It could sound stupid. It could sound like bad news. It could sound like, you know, like you're just speaking another language. All that's possible, but it is still a treasure. All right, so if that's true for, non, for somebody who's not a Christian, uh, what is what are the, all that Christ accomplished for us on the cross, what does that mean for us as Christians? 